I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. The Wonderfulness of Us is a conversation that took place at the Edinburgh Book Festival in August 2011 between Linda Colley, Tom Devine, R.W. Johnson and Andrew O'Hagan. The event was organised as a response to a piece by Richard J. Evans published in the LRB earlier that year about national histories and the ways they should and should not be taught. In November last year, during parliamentary questions, there was the following exchange between Philip Davis, the Conservative MP for Shipley, and Michael Gove. Davis, I welcome the Secretary of State's commitment to the teaching of British history and I hope it will be done in a way that allows us to be proud of our country, rather than always apologising for our history. Does he agree that that can be done only if history is taught as a single subject? In many schools it has been merged with other subjects such as geography. What can he do to ensure that history is taught as a single subject so that people can learn properly about British history? And Gove responds, My honourable friend makes a good point. The changes we are making to the national curriculum and to accountability through the English baccalaureate will ensure that history is taught as a proper subject so that we can celebrate the distinguished role of these islands in the history of the world. From the role of the Royal Navy in putting down the slave trade to the way in which since 1688 this nation has been a beacon for liberty that others have sought to emulate. We will also ensure that it is taught in a way in which we can all take pride, end of quote. Now this question of pride might be seen to be an interesting one when it comes to history and the teaching of it. Pride, as well as the effort to, quote, stop the trashing of our past, has also featured in Gove's speech at the Tory party conference the month before the material spoken and that I've just quoted to you. <coughs> Simon Sharma immediately appeared to join the effort to see the national curriculum as being something that should, and I quote, foster a sense of British national identity. A pressure group called Better History, formed in 2006, was seen to stand behind the argument. They want narrative history to do some good in the line of national self-esteem. Others called it a return to the dominance of kings and queens, although I have to say, if you look at the existing national curriculum, there seems already to be a fair preponderance of dead monarchs. In the London Review of Books, and this is, after all, a London Review-sponsored debate, so let me quote from an article there written by Richard J. Evans. Uh, he made the point that, quote, none of these arguments is so far met with any serious opposition. Not one historian has spoken out either in favour of these ideas or against them, he said. The Labour Party has remained silent. He made the point that this is really a question about how history uh, is to be taught rather than what is taught. He also made the point that what makes good television is not the same as what makes good teaching. Now, Tom Devine, uh, in one of his 
responses to some of these said that there had been something parsimonious about uh, the way that this crucial subject was being discussed. Um, so as you know, the LRB, no friend to parsimony, has brought together what to my mind, and I'm sure to yours as three of the world's most distinguished historians, let me tell you who they are. We have Linda Colley, who is the Shelby M.C. Davis 1958 Professor of History at Princeton. Among her books are Britons, Forging the Nation, 1707 to 1837, and Captives, Britain, Empire and the World, 1600 to 1850. Her most recent is The Ordeal of Elizabeth Marsh, A Woman in World History. Tom Devine is Sir William Fraser Professor of Scottish History and Paleography at the University of Edinburgh and Director of the Scottish Centre of Diaspora Studies. Recent books include, as editor, Scotland and the Union, 1707 to 2007, and his own, The Scottish Nation, 1700 to 2007. To the ends of the earth, Scotland's global diaspora is out now. Bill Johnson is Emeritus Fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford, and a correspondent for both the London Review of Books and the Sunday Times. His books include South Africa, The First Man, The Last Nation, and South Africa's Brave New World, the beloved country since the end of apartheid. Linda, I would like to come to you first. Um, I opened with some <laughs> quotes uh, from the politicians and some remarks of my own, but I would like to, if, if you'll help us, uh, go more forensic. Until the 1980s, it was not thought appropriate that governments, whether based in London or in Edinburgh, of course, uh, should dictate historical syllabi, only totalitarian regimes were thought to find that appropriate. Why the change? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is something that's emerged from a book that's been commissioned by the Lindsbury Trust in London. Um, and I think we all have this idea that, well, at least I'd had this idea that, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, certainly in England, everybody had to do kings and queens and so forth. Um, but in fact, what this book, which has gone deep into the archives, has shown is that the London Board of Education took a very hands-off attitude. Uh, they distributed guidelines uh, as to what teachers might want to teach, but the whole line was that teachers in different localities and different schools should make up their own mind what the syllabus should be. And there's a great exchange in the Westminster Parliament around 1947, and someone stands up and says, we don't think there's enough teaching of the British Empire, and the British Empire must be put in the school syllabus. And the Minister of State says, and I think it's a wonderfully crushing and correct reply, we do not do the syllabus. This is an education bill. In other words, we do education. Uh, the minutiae of the syllabi is left to the school, to the teachers. Why has it shifted since the 1980s? Well, it's partly the coming of the national curriculum in London. And it's Keith Joseph, uh, the buddy of Thatcher, that brings back this uh, notion of our island story, uh, a phrase that should be banned. <laughs> I mean, you know, a geographer, a look at the map would convince him that, you know, there were lots of islands and there's not just one story. Um, so it's partly the coming of the national curriculum. It's also, of course, the increasing angst of the union, um, concern on both sides of the border, though in different ways, uh, 
south of the border to buttress a unionist version, north of the border uh, to tell much more of a Scottish story. So there's that element coming through. I think the final reason why this has become more of an issue since the 1980s is that history at academic level has been shifting. Um, academic historians are much more interested now in general in the world history, in imperial history, in maritime history. Uh, and many historians have questioned whether the nation state or individual nations, whether this is not too much of a straitjacket for responsible historical inquiry. So I think for all sorts of reasons, you've got this shift from uh, a, a sort of hands-off perspective yes. to a much more hands-on one. Bill, it seems almost counterintuitive, you might say, that in the era that has always been described as the era of globalization, that, that thinking about history should take a turn like this. But you, of course, have witnessed in South Africa the way that uh, national history of the national story has been exploited for political ends by both sides. Could you talk about that? Yes, well, <clears throat> I went to school in South Africa from the age of 13, and certainly the history which we learned then was very much dictated by an Afrikaner nationalist government, and even the European history in it was very much all about uh, how Calvinism uh, grew and rose and, and was a wonderful thing, because of course the Dutch Reformed Church was very powerful in South Africa. Uh, it goes without saying that the role of Indian people in South Africa, of whom there are a million today, uh, that was passed over completely, and though that of coloured mixed-race people, I think, just about equally. Uh, Africans had to be spoken about, but of course they were always the objects of history, the people who you defeated in order uh, to have glorious victories and take land and do nice things with it. Uh, so that was pretty awful history, really, a lot of it. Although, you know, there were some bits of it that were still usable. Uh, now what's happened under the ANC government is more or less the reverse. That is to say that all that stuff has been wiped out and instead, first of all, everything since 1652, which is when whites first arrived there, is simply described as the era of oppression, which goes on until 1994, and it's all seen as just one long thing. The fact that apartheid only started after 1948 or the fact that you know, there were only whites in South Africa in the Cape province until the 1830s. All of that's lost. And you would never know that South Africa fought in two world wars and that, you know, it's got the deepest mines in the world and it's done lots of other things besides oppress black people. Uh, all that now seems to be lost. And instead, we have a history which is basically the history of the struggle. So. And in that, particularly the role of Communist Party and ANC people, so that liberals, who played a large role, are now more or less whited out. And if you go to the Museum of Apartheid in Joburg, you will hardly see any liberals. You won't see anything of Helen Sussman or people like that or Alan Payton. Uh, and it's very much a sort of party view of history. And it, it's obviously uh, hopelessly political. And when Thabo Mbeki was president, of course, his great theme was the African Renaissance. Now that he's been pushed out, that's being whited out of the history books very quickly. I mean, it happens that quick. And you can imagine that every new president, will, there'll be little shifts one way and the other. So it's a very poor advertisement for nationalist control of history. 
and I suspect this will always be so. Uh, bits of it are usable and bits of it are useful. But one thing that does strike me, Andrew, is that I can't help feeling that in Britain, and I'm sure it applies equally north and south of the border, it's very much more difficult to make those sort of changes than it is in South Africa because you've got this enormous uh, cadre of professional historians, not only in universities but in schools as well. And they're quite formidable, and there are large numbers of them, and they really will not be imposed upon that easily. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, do think, I do think that uh, that isn't so true in South Africa, uh, or most uh, developing countries, and that I would think Michael Gove will have a real struggle on his hands, frankly. We'll come back to that. Tom, I want to bring you in here, um, perhaps with special reference to Scotland, given that we're here and we have you here. Um, is, how new is this? We know uh, about the invention of history when it comes to Scotland, at least people have made that argument. This seems like a mobilisation of history for political purposes. Could you speak about it in reference to Scotland? Well, I, I mean, the, the, there is always a tendency um, up here to think that we are doing things better than down there. Um, but I think this is, to some extent, Andrew, fortuitous, because we do not have anything resembling a national curriculum in any subject. And in fact, even the guidelines, semi-rigorous as they were, and giving enormous flexibility to head teachers and even indeed specialist teachers, that flexibility has been further extended by the so-called ironically named curriculum for excellence, um, which is yet to demonstrate whether it is excellent or not. Some of the people whose opinion I favour and respect in my own university especially educationalists, think that the jury, by, very, by any particular definition, will be out for a long time on this. But the essence of this curriculum, ladies and gentlemen, is that it will allow, and especially in what you would might call the non-core subjects, like mathematics, um, it will allow considerable local devolution to schools about what is taught within the general parameters of, I think, rather opaque guidelines. Now this has got, I mean, if you want my own personal opinion, I think if we had a middle way between the straight jackets out of the border, the, um, the uh, national curriculum, because down there, of course, politicians can then pull the levers in a way which they can't, to the same extent at least, do now. I was being re reassured just a few minutes ago by Michael Russell that the new Scottish Studies course would not in any sense be regarded as pro-nationalism. And of course, I completely accepted his analysis and you know, his very convincing uh, statement about this. <laughs> <laughs> but a national curriculum lends itself to levers of power and lends itself to centralist intervention. It may not occur, but it lends itself to that. Now, the Scottish, the Scottish approach, in my view, has gone almost to the opposite extreme. And as a professional historian, because I'm sure my colleagues will agree, you need a degree of coherence in the study of the past. In my view, you need powerful analytical coherence. But you also need at least episodic chronology over time. And I can assure you that I've come across multiple examples in our schools, that is schools in Scotia, of kids in the later part of the primary, in the early part of the secondary, and then as far as advanced higher, repeating some of the stuff they've had earlier. There, there doesn't need to be in the queen of all disciplines, ACA history, 
there does need to be a degree of organized, not control, but organized guidance. So I think in terms of this evening's debate, we've got two extremities. We have something that I don't think, as um, Bill has said, we would tolerate up here. And it wouldn't simply be the academic establishment who'd be protesting about it. There's a tremendous vested interest in history in this country. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary to some of my visiting colleagues from North America uh, to read the Scottish press and to see how much history re rears itself as what, an issue. Why is that? Well, we're in, we're in the, what, what, um, uh, what, what one famous man called the historical age. This is an historical age for Scotland. We are on the cusp, perhaps, of something quite different from what existed as far back as, as 1707. That's one vitally important aspect of it. Another aspect of it, in terms of uh, my connection, particularly with public audiences, is hunger. One of the big advantages of being a university teacher in Scotland, I think something which will rapidly diminish over time, in terms of Scottish history in particular, is that, especially in public events like this, a small minority of those who attend have actually had systematically taught Scottish history in schools. Now that's changing very rapidly indeed. But I recall one of my most brilliant students, not at Edinburgh University, but another institution that I taught, he said, when I was halfway through the Scottish history course, it was almost as if the, the eye, you know, the, the, uh, the stuff that, that, that had been there in, in a complete area of ignorance uh, of the Scottish past, he said, it's actually exotic. But it's not as exotic as Nazification. It's not as exotic as Stalinism, Maoism, or the last days of Hitler. But a lot of people in Scotland are fascinated by it nowadays, partly for the political reasons are given, but also partly because they've been bereft of that particular agenda as they grew up. The next generation coming into Scottish universities will probably regard what they find as boring mm -hmm. because they've had it before. But I'm retiring, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Linda, is it, is it possible, I'll come to you Bill in a second, but could you just pick up on that question? Is there, is there a confusion here in the politicians' way of discussing the matter? And that's to say that they, they get confused about <clears throat> history and memory, forgetting that, as an academic discipline, history might see its job as interrogating memory and the myths that it promulgates. Do you think they understand with enough subtlety what history actually can be? I'm not sure politicians are necessarily concerned over much with subtlety. Um, I, you know, history is different. Of course, it's by far the best discipline. We're all agreed on that. But, you know, it's different from so many other disciplines. You know, with, with physics, there, there are laws of physics. But history lends itself to endless interpretation. Uh, and one of the ways it can, one of the many ways it can be interpreted or used is to serve various political and national agendas. And history is always going to be vulnerable to that. And, and we need to recognize that. Um, I think the politicians can be useful. I mean, I think actually one of the, the very useful things that politicians could do, and I believe this is so in Scotland as well as in England, yes. but in England one of the problems is that history is only compulsory up to the age of 14. And I think that's true in Scotland as well. Um, and I think one of the things politicians on both sides of the border could do 
is uh, change this so that we are at the same level of historical exposure in education to most countries in Western Europe, it's compulsory until 16. Because if you did that, then you could tell, school teachers could tell lots of different stories. They could tell stories of country, stories of the different nations of the United Kingdom, stories of the United Kingdom's many and multiple relations with the outside world, which is really important. Uh, we, we can't be parochial. Um, what about this question of chronology, Linda? Uh, well, I would, again, like to see a bit more. I mean, you know, in, in England, uh, it's, it's a classic complaint, but in many schools it's so. You do jump from Tudor and Stuart uh, which has the kind of gory appeal of Henry VIII and all school kids like that. And then they jump to the Second World War. Uh, I mean, my, my nephew, who's just turned 13, there was a stage where he, he did Henry VIII one day a week and Hitler another day. <laughs> this did not give him a very <coughs> constructive view of emerging masculinity. So, uh, you know, was, never, was never it, mind. Was there an assumed causal relationship? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it would be nice if governments could actually do something useful without leaning on the historians, but, but changing the age when people stop doing history is something that all governments should uh, be doing. Sorry, I think there's a way around, because obviously you, I think one of the other problems that I, I, I presume you will accept, uh, Linda, is we cannot cover the totality of the past. It's got to be selective. And in discussions with the Scottish Government, when they were thinking about you know, the new Scottish history hire, which is, which is, sorry, the new Scottish history area in the hire, which is coming in, I, my own view is there's a way around the problem of mass but yet the problem, on the other hand, the, the problem of coherence and chronology. Certainly in my subject area, that is the history of Scotland. Because my own reckoning is there's probably about seven or eight major um, you know, watershed changes in the history of this society. Uh, and that really goes back to the earliest times of this society and this nation, that every educated Scot should at least know something about it. But also, as has been implied by Professor Colley, know about it in the context of global or European history. So the idea was not only to have such themes, but to try and have such themes that plug in to the world, plug into the global area. Because having finished this uh, volume that uh, Andrew referred to, and you know, we've got to be very careful about using words like unique and distinctive. But there are few migratory peoples <laughs> with such an intensity and longer of movement as people from this society. So Scottish history lends itself to opening up that kind of world dimension. Yeah. Bill, yeah, j j j just hold with me a second. I want to, to pursue this question of chronology just a, just a minute more because in quote to you something of Simon Shamas, I don't want to set the historians against each other, but we are... Why not? Uh, we always we do it. We want to be unshy. That's our trade, Andrew. My own anecdotal evidence, he writes, suggests that Right across the secondary school system, our children are being shortchanged of the patrimony of their story, which is to say the liniments of the whole story, for there can be no true history that refuses uh, to span the arc, no coherence without chronology. That seems to feed into the Gove project to my Yes, I, I think that, you see, what he's talking about there 
really to Rasha saying which Linda in her list of reasons as to why this has become a subject I think there was another one which was not being mentioned so far but which is powerfully there mm. and it's not just in the minds of conservative politicians mm. but you would find radical Jacobins like Jean-Pierre Chevènement mm. in France saying the same thing and that's because of the growing multiculturalism of Absolutely. the society Absolutely. and the fact that more and more people from the West Indies or Asia or wherever are there and they say, okay, well, they've arrived in Britain, Scotland, England, wherever you like. If they're going to be really one of us, uh, then they have to understand the history of this place. And they have to, to some extent, identify with it. I mean, this is what's clearly behind, I think, a lot of Michael Gove and Simon Sharma. And that's why you need to have this continuous chronology leading you all the way through. Because that's history as a means of almost like citizenship studies, really. Yeah. A way of telling you who you are and then of being proud of who you are. And as you can see from what Gove says, he wants to emphasize all the good bits. I mean, he wants to talk about the Royal Navy suppressing slavery rather than the hundred years in which it <laughs> you know. Uh, and okay, I mean, it's legitimate enough to talk about the suppressing slavery, but my God, it's not the only part, you know. Um, I think that there is a real problem here because I think all of us can say that, you know, in a multiculturalist society, I'm sure it would be true in Scotland as well, that you would want people who came here to live, who might be English, Welsh, whatever, you know, to identify with the country, to understand where it's coming from, and so forth. There's a legitimate reason. But the question is whether, I mean, in a way, this is a tribute to history as a subject, because they look to that to do it. But, I mean, damn it, you know, I mean, they, uh, why lean on history so much? I mean, you know, why not have citizenship studies if that's what you want? Mm -hmm. uh, because it seems to me that's what they're really asking for here, really. I, I and think that Sharma think, is, is appealing for something like that. I think that's a vital point you made about multiculturalism, and I, I think that's why the temperature up here is not quite as acute. Yeah. Because we have in this country only 1% of the population who come from non-European backgrounds. So that sense of using the subject as a way of creating a collective identity, the pressure is not as great here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Linda? Yeah, but I mean, in fact, it, it seems to me that <coughs> I agree this is an issue, but it's also an opportunity. Uh, I mean, one of the ways, uh, and I think historians from across the UK could put their heads together about this. One of the ways that you could tie these various strands together is to teach these islands as stories both of inward migration and outward migration. Uh, and you know, one could work out a really fascinating course that um, students from different backgrounds and different countries could take, uh, which would, you know, do justice to the different traditions and stories and debates and the good, the bad, the indifferent, but also give, you know, I have no objection to the idea that people living in a place should know how it came to be as it is and should know a bit about how it works. I mean, you know, even yeah. If, even if that narrative is largely um, unflattering, well, Absolutely. Well, I mean, what's what's flattering? What's what's unflattering? I mean, you know, one of the things that history teaches you is that it's actually quite difficult to say. Obviously, things like slavery, black, white, easy, no middle view in some ways. <clears throat> but the Industrial Revolution seems to me one of the things that you should be explaining to children is 
the complexity of human behavior, of human conduct. Um, the Industrial Revolution, which was so pioneering both in England, parts of Wales, and in parts of Scotland, and indeed parts of Ireland. Um, tremendous economic power, in some ways great achievements, scientific, mechanical, engineering. Um, but what effect did it have on the laboring poor? Not always a very nice one. And I think school kids can take this in. Um, and it's a good thing that they should. Yeah. There's an elephant in the room uh, over there. Um, <laughs> and the elephant in the room is the Gove approach and the Shama approach, and even christened his television series this, Linda, mm. was the history of Britain. Mm. Believe that? It was the history of England with a, bit, a few attachments. And there'll be great scepticism, especially up here, although it won't necessarily affect school children up here, about what Gove and his acolytes are getting on about in terms of the history of Britain. Because the irony of this whole story is <coughs> we might be seeing um, the early stages of what Nairn, Tom Nairn called the breakup of Britain. We don't know that the, the future mm -hmm. is not our period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. it, it, is that acceptable? Well, um, time will tell. So, 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 so th we have this irony of the push for something called British history, which means the history of all of these islands, I would assume including Ireland, mm -hmm. and at the, as, at the same time when there are possibly centrifugal and maybe irresistible pressures to break up this particular entity. At a time when um, Scottish politicians, at least in terms of their indirect influence, and certainly the Scottish educational establishment, is pressing for more, quote, Scottish history in the schools. I think one of the great dangers of this is, ironically, that both, well, certainly in Scotland, and there may be a danger in England as well, the history of the British Isles might be being squeezed out mm. um, of our curricula, north and south of the border. Because I, I, I'm absolutely certain, well, reasonably confident, that despite his background in Aberdeen Grammar School, Michael Gove, when he talks about... Sorry, uh, it's, because, it's, because I, it's because I was educated at Robert Gordon's, I didn't want to mention it. No, that, that's, sorry, that is a lie. The Aberdeen School, where M Michael Gold was educated, um, a sense that, especially given the people whom he has recruited so far, that the emphasis on locus will be very much... Uh, in the history of England with, again, the usual kind of add-ons. And by the time, of course, it comes to pass, there might be a set of constitutional arrangements which do you detect, do you detect um, the politicians' views notwithstanding, do you detect in the public's mind an increased um, taste, if you like, for history as good news, when to hear good stories about themselves? I mean, I know you've got the good word of the minister that he won't do this, but if the no, nationalists... No, 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 I mean, no, it's the very reverse. I mean, for example, I couldn't st stand up in a public audience or even write a book uh, of the type that's just been published and not look at the, the past warts and all. I mean, you've got to remember that our audiences are quite sophisticated. They will recognise the Burns Supper School of Scottish History. They will recognise propaganda for what it is. They will, rep <laughs> rep represent, they will recognise the celebration of the past for what it is. There may be some people, most of them in the southern USA, who look upon Scotland as a land of romance and having never done anything in its past. And of course, those are the people who buy the books um, entitled The Scottish Enlightenment, or How Europeans, Europe's Poorest People 
invented our world and everything in it. Mm. You know, if, you, if, if, if you've got that kind of pornographic taste, mm. then, then so be it. But most consumers of our discipline, I think, are more sophisticated is than that. Is that true, Bill? I mean, obviously, what we're talking about at some level is the relationship between power and truth. And you have witnessed up close um, otherwise benign governments, or perhaps less than benign, who understand all too well how important it is to manipulate uh, facts uh, so as to bolster a sense of their own virtue. Well, in a way, it's worse than that because, uh, you know, in order to exalt somebody, it usually means uh, dwelling upon uh, the periods when they were victorious, uh, the Battle of Britain or Battle of Bannockburn or whatever you like. And, you know, it means usually that someone's got to be the baddies. And certainly that was true in South Africa, you know. I mean, a great day was the Battle of Blood River, December the 16th, which was a victory over the Zulus. And, you know, celebrated every year. It was a public holiday and so forth. And I think now, you know, uh, when the ANC is in charge, the emphasis is, I'm afraid, partly on the struggle, which is a victorious struggle, but it's even more on Africans as victims. It's encouraging a tremendous sense of victimhood and thus entitlement, uh, which is a most unhealthy thing for anybody, actually. So, you know, I think the problem is that in, the, in that case, in many developing countries, is that, you know, the audience is essentially unsophisticated, not very well educated, and therefore politicians can do this and they can get away with it. What Tom was saying, you know, about the audience in Scotland being quite sophisticated, I'm afraid just isn't so true there. And nor is the cadre of historians as powerful. And indeed, uh, in the same way that, I mean, you'll always find a Simon Sharma who will lend himself to this, you know. Well, there are plenty of people in South Africa who will lend themselves to nationalist historiography as well. It's, it's, a, well, it's a career move. You know? I mean, there's an extraordinary sense of the actual power of this, of this discipline. You know, if you even go back to Nazi Germany, that one of my graduate students has been looking at the untaking of Scottish mythology as a kind of surrogate culture in modern Germany. The Germans are now so ashamed of their past, going back to the medieval period, because of the castration of that past during the Nazi period. It is a fearfully formidable discipline in the hands of totalitarians, uh, the, the discipline that we profess. That sophistication among the populace that Tom's been referring to, and the lack of which uh, Bill just mentioned, would you care to look at the English, and perhaps the Americans uh, in that way, Linda, and give an assessment of how, how you think the public taste exists at the present time? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Anglo-Irish Welsh, but I have nothing <laughs> Scottish in me, so uh, this may not be a popular thing. I'm not convinced that anybody anywhere is all that sophisticated totally about their past. I mean, Braveheart, admittedly, <laughs> you know, I, uh, <laughs> forgive me, but, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, the, 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 the appeal of patriotic <clears throat> history is obvious. Um, there's a sort of little nugget in most bosoms that, you know, wants to believe that because one was born in a place, that place must be precious or <clears throat> blessed. Um, and, and, and nationalist history, patriotic history, can draw on that anywhere. Um, I think that 
what do I think? I think that there, we have to be careful of having too much of a gulf between professional historians and people who are so-called lay people who are really interested in history and want to know. And I, I believe passionately in the importance of communicating history to big audiences. And I do think that people want to know the story of where they are, where they've come from. They want to know how the structure works. Uh, and professional historians should be able to tell them, to communicate them. I think that's, that's part of our job. But I also think that professional historians can communicate questions and a certain amount of skepticism. I mean, we all know that the boundaries of every nation there has ever been um, have been porous, whether they're land boundaries or sea boundaries. Uh, we know that every nation there has ever been, there have been internal divisions with different people having different perspectives. And so, and we know that every nation that there has ever been uh, has got good things to its credit and really horrible things to its discredit because we are human beings and fallible creatures. Um, so <coughs> I would like to think wherever we are, England, Scotland, the United States, one hopes in the future, South Africa, um, that there will be communication between um, expert scholars who can both and the people who want the stories and that there will be both a communication of stories but also a communication of nuance and an element of scepticism. We have to do all that. Okay, Tom. Just very quickly, um, what I meant by a sophisticated audience, of course, Linda, was those who read my own books. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily referring to the totality of the Scottish nation, um, especially those who allowed it from 1999 to gain over Harry Potter for two and a half weeks, but only two and a half weeks, Andrew. Anyway, um, the point I was going to make shameless. was this. Shameless, absolutely shameless. Um, the, the point I was going to make with this was to agree with Linda in, in this sense. To go back to the historical illiteracy of the Scottish people, um, that remarkable work done by Sidney Wood of the late Aberdeen College of Education in 2001 uh, on 16-year-olds, demonstrating that 56% of them, these were people who were actually doing, uh, I think in the old days it was called old grade history, believed that the Union of 1707 had come about by conquest. And Culloden, I think it was 67% agreed that it was a conflict between England and Scotland. But it's back to the power of this discipline. Citizens of this country brought up and believing in that, that has political consequences. Obviously it does. So it's not simply a question of some kind of dilettante debate on these issues. One of the reasons why history surfaces so much in press and media controversies is because of this potency mm -hmm. and this, this ability to to influence minds, and often through mythology, rather than any of the sort of things that we do. I want to uh, bring the lights up and invite you to ask questions, because I want a full 15 minutes for questions. Please don't be shy. Um, there's a mic and all that. Um, yes, sir. Wait for the mic, uh, would you? Yeah, my, my question. So yeah, my question concerns how very different we will end up from South Africa even, 
in grappling with that period between the Tudors and the Second World War, do you think that across Britain, Scotland, Wales, England, we're ready to, to tell the story with all the moral complexity of what happened in the intervening period, the colonial period, the building of the nation? Do you think there's enough kind of unity in telling that story in this country yet? Bill? Well, look, I think the problem is, which Tom has alluded to in a way, is that if you do British history, uh, England is so predominant, both in population and historically, that you end up with an Anglo-centric uh, thing in which you add on bits. And that is just going to be a problem, uh, no matter which way you look at north or south of the border. But I do, I mean, I take the point the gentleman's made that you know, if you really want to understand our society today, I mean, I remember when I was teaching in Oxford, I, my, my colleagues who are medieval historians would always interview, ask people, why do you want to read history? What do you think the point of medieval history is? And they, the right answer, in inverted commas, was always, you know, this is the making of our society and you can't really understand the modern world without it. And I remember towards the end of his career, one of my colleagues who was a medievalist said, you know, it's no longer true that isn't really right anymore. I mean, he was still fascinated by his subject, but he said, really, to understand the modern world has changed so much. You've really got to start in 1789, but you must know everything after that. You absolutely have to know that most recent period. It's more important, actually, than knowing the medieval period. Now, I think there is a lot to be said for that, actually, and that in that sense, I would rather dwell upon the last 200 years, particularly. And I don't just mean Second World War, you know. Because uh, of its role in helping us understand how we live now. Yes, because the world has changed so much and so rapidly, and the pace of change is still accelerating, I think. So that um, I do think that in order to understand ourselves and where we come from, that that period is particularly important. I'm not trying to say no one should study medieval history or Roman history or whatever. But I, I do think that in order to be educated about your society today, knowing about that last couple of hundred years is really crucial. Okay, thanks. Yes, sir? Uh, I like the phrase, uh, watershed events. And, uh, <laughs> It's important, of course, to see that a narrative view of history is not necessarily kings and queens. And if we look at the 16th century, if you start with Henry VIII, you'll get into the nuances of how the six were dispatched, one after the one, each other. Whereas if you understand it as a reformation, then you look at the nuances of covenanters, etc., the centres, how it happens right throughout history. So is, is there not an issue that we, we need to try and find a way of talking about watershed events as a narrative of history rather than the royal succession. So this, this might dovetail with uh, the view of Lord Acton over a hundred years ago um, who told the students at Cambridge to study problems, not periods. Um, does that hold water, Linda? Um, I, I don't think there's a perfect answer, but I do think it's important to get over, particularly to the youngest child, change over time. Uh, that you know, certain things happen in order. And I wouldn't want to go back to a strict kings and queens perspective. But of course, one of the things it did was it, did, it, it, it was a kind of primitive way of conveying change. You know, George II really did come after George I. 
Um, and, you know, so you, you, you sorted out the 18th and early 19th century that way. Now, there must be other ways of doing it. Um, but I think to give particularly young children a framework of time that that is perhaps more, that has to become before you start slotting in the problems because otherwise it does become episodic. It does mean that if you're not careful, you're jumping from the Reformation to uh, the Holocaust. Um, and you know, kids can't make sense of that. I think, there's, as, I say, as I tried to imply earlier, I think there's a way of blending what Linda has said uh, and the horrific task of trying to get everything in in terms of chronology. And I'm think, simply talking about this small country here. Because, I said, as I said, as I tried to argue earlier, Andrew, I think you know, if you had a, a core, a spine, uh, in terms of Scottish history, with, with, the, with the, uh, the areas around it of contextual understanding of Britain, Europe and the world as the curricula move forward, which would include the making of the nation, the wars of independence, the reformation, the enlightenment, industrialization, urbanization, the imperial context and migration, the great wars of the 20th century, and then the condition we're in now. Now that's not perfect. It's not in any sense perfect. And it's not meant to convey, if you like, a straight line understanding of academic history. But at least for those people who are going to, and there'll be two thirds of them, who give up history in Scottish schools by the, age of, uh, by the end of the age of 14, it will give them a broad understanding of how we came to be the way we are. I, I to some extent, accept Bill's point that the last three centuries are critical. But I think, especially if you're dealing with a nation which is in the process, as we are, of recovering our history, I think you do also need to go back to the medieval period, yeah. the birth of that nation, of that entity. Is there a specific problem, can I just ask you, before going to another question from the audience, um, in Scotland's case, with so little being known before the 9th century, uh, I don't want you to have to address the whole Trevor Roper thing here, but um, it obviously has been useful to historians. To say garbage. Scottish historians in the past, Bateas or Buchanan, made use um, yes. of the fact that, in a sense, that fictive history had a role Absolutely. to play in the building up of Scotland. Absolutely. Could you just address that? Well, I mean, I think naively, you know, when I was, when I was younger, um, used to believe that one of our roles, and to some extent it is our role still, is, is fragmenting the mythology. And some people have argued, I think um, Lord Dacre himself uh, argued that Scotland was more replete with mythology and myth in their historical understanding than probably any other nation in Europe. But I think, and I don't know whether my colleagues agree, I think the more exciting and interesting things is, and especially this is the case with, um, if you like, first year undergraduates, you know, those who have just come from school, is not to smash the myth, but to understand why it's mm. developed. Um, it's, uh, you know, it may have a core of truth, both of them do have, but why is it the case? I mean, there's a classic example, which is back to the Trevor Roper issue, of Highlandism in Scotland. I mean, how does an urban and industrial-based society take on the sartorial um, dimension <laughs> of, uh, of primitive, primitive ruralism? albeit in designer format. <laughs> now, I, th I, th I honestly think, you know, it's, it's quite easy to laugh at this, as, as, as the audience has done, and you know, it is, it is in, in many ways very funny, and I can assure you, 
in the last chapter <coughs> of this current book, it's even funnier to see the way in which it's been developed and rendered even more interesting in the southern states of the USA mm. uh, in recent years. And I'm, but surely the fundamental question about that is, why does it happen? Mm. Maybe we can bring Linda in at this point, Linda, because I know people are keen to ask, but just to complete that point, I mean, in the writing of Britons, did you find, just to answer that specific point, did you find that uh, as you were working with your material there that the Scots did have more of an inclination towards mythology than the English? Oh, I don't think I'd say that, no. Um, I, I mean, I did find Britons, well, challenging to write at all sorts of levels, but challenging for me as someone who'd been educated in England to acquire information about Scotland because I hadn't been taught Scottish history. Uh, and I, you know, I think that that's one of the things that needs to happen, whatever the political future of these islands, uh, that we need to know more about the history of the different parts of these islands. And one of the reasons I think why Gove says the things that he says and Keith Joseph and David Cameron can talk about our island story is a disproportionate number, particularly of conservative MPs, and of course this has been true of successive British governments, have been educated in Oxford and Cambridge. Absolutely. And they just do English history. There is a qualification to that, Linda. Places that cause trouble in the British Isles are included to some extent, i.e. there is some Irish history. So if the Scots become increasingly recalcitrant <laughs> over the next few years, you may actually you think, get... You think it will sort itself it, well, out? It won't, no, it won't sort itself out, but it will seep in. Yeah. It will seep in how to, to a limited how to, extent. How to, how to balance the books. Yes, sir. Second row. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think the panel's dealt with the Gove um, basic point that uh, uh, we did have a, a, a celebratory history, certainly when I was very young. I grew up with that. And to some extent, it has turned into a, a history of a, a denigrating history. And that hasn't been to do with politicians. That's been to do with historians and teachers and training colleges. And I was in the 70s training and experiencing that change where all the elements of British history were being reinterpreted in, different, in a new way. Now, I don't, I don't uh, I don't like to be critical, but I, I do think there's a sense coming from people that, on the one hand, we've got politicians who are politically motivated and, in a sense, biased, and historians who are scholarly and impartial, looking at things from a from a height and not taking sides. But the historians themselves have produced a huge change in the way British history is interpreted. I don't think the panel's right. OK, well, well, let's just put that to them. Uh, who wants to take that on first? Take I totally it. agree with it. Um, uh, the, um, and what, one, of the, one of the reasons that's happened is because, uh, well, I think, A, it's happened because I think the discipline, I hate to be indulgent whiggery, but I think the discipline now is so sophisticated that it must take account of the totality of the human experience not simply from a particular perspective. Second thing is, yes, we are human. Uh, my interpretation of events will be different from Bill's and different from Linda's, perhaps. We may agree in certain things. The, the balance between negative, between light and darkness will shift. But the other, the other thing is that one of the great developments of the 20th century 
was the history of the totality of people and away from elites. And when that does happen, I think almost certainly the celebratory movement, especially the celebratory, celebratory movement towards some kind of final libertarianism, inevitably collapses. Because we know in the 20th century, of course, that human history is not about getting better all of the time. The horrors we have experienced sometimes in our lifetimes have been such that that must put a cold douche on such assumptions. You know? Yeah, I mean, I also think, you know, we've been talking as though uh, the people writing about these islands live in these islands, but of course, increasingly, that is not the case. And one of the things that has happened increasingly post-war has been what's been called the empire rights back. Uh, in other words, post-colonial history giving a very different spin to uh, some of the older celebratory versions of the British Empire. Uh, and um, in some ways that's been very interesting and has created all kinds of fascinating cross-hatching. Uh, at times, um, one oversimplified version has replaced another oversimplified version. So uh, having got rid of the empire as a purveyor of light and improvement and stability across the world, you get Britain as the source of racism, oppression, and making victims across the globe. Um, and it's going to take some time, I think, for historians to work through that. And never, there's not going to be any agreement, of course. But I think we're still working through that. But that's one of the delights of the subject, <coughs> the constant reinterpretation. History changes, but so also do our views change as well. <clears throat> OK, let's try and squeeze in a few more questions. We're running out of time. Maybe the only Russian historian here in this audience, and I just want to tell you all how lucky British historians are uh, when they discuss such topics. I don't think that the, uh, the prime minister of your country comes to a, a meeting in the Academy of Sciences or any university and tells you that this and this is exactly how uh, Russian or British history is to be taught, and this is what is happening in Russia now. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is uh, that uh, the patriotic or uh, celebratory uh, type of, of history uh, is exactly what is uh, the official history or the only history that can be taught in so many countries. I taught for 10 years in uh, South Africa. And what is happening there is that the discipline which is called heritage, mm -hmm. is substituted yes. for a discipline which is called history. They are two completely different disciplines, and yet this is what is happening. Uh, so I just want to remind you that there is the rest of the world which is very illiterate to the laws or to the uh, rules of uh, the history as okay. discipline. And I think that uh, you really should celebrate the opportunities that you have. Very good point. Thank you. Yes, sir, over here. Speeding up, speeding up. Brilliant, thanks. To quick, Bill Johnson said that you couldn't write a history of Britain, which wouldn't be uh, wouldn't suffer from uh, Anglo-centrism. But I've got to say that 
I found Linda Collies, but didn't suffer from that. Yeah, yeah. A, a revelation <laughs> as a Scot. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. I could say a lot more about it. But the, the last person that I would entrust with that is Simon Shamar. That's my last one. I I read his book on America, and he manages to write a chapter on religion in America, and not to mention Presbyterianism. It's astonishing. I'm glad to. Um, I'll just quickly come to this man, and then I've got to try to wind it up. Yeah, but very quickly, um, there is another um, elephant in the room, and that is regional history. And you can probably tell from the way I speak that I come from the north of England. And my history is very different from the history in the south of England, or the West Country, or Wales, or East Anglia, or anywhere else. And the reason for that is it's not just social and economic patterns which were different in history as well as religious but also we had different relationships with different parts of the world our relationship like lowland scotland was more with the netherlands um, with the baltics um, with places like that and um, that is a very very big elephant and i don't think okay. gold straight jacket is going to get a hold of it Quick, quick response from each of you on some of these more recent points, regionalism. One, of the, one of the great historians <coughs> of the mid-20th century and um, who founded the unit of local history at Leicester said exactly that point. Mm. That all the societies we study in these islands, they are a, a complex mix um, of um, smaller, smaller entities. We can't do everything, however. So I think the thing about regional history is, it's the same with national history, it's always got to be placed in a context in order to become significant, otherwise it descends into antiquarianism. Linda? Yeah, uh, I think that's a very important point. Um, and it's important that, that what's been called the straitjacket of national history should be challenged both from uh, outside by global stories, international, transcontinental stories, but also from within the nation, with regions, localities, uh, the history of towns, uh, the history of the countryside. Um, and, you know, I think that's one reason why having a national syllabus is a real problem. That, that I think the old idea of allowing teachers in different schools uh, to have their own thing, uh, to work out dis in a discretionary way what their students will be interested in, as well as doing bigger stories, if you like. Uh, but local history is very important, absolutely. Bill? Well, fine point. I, I want to just pick up what the gentleman here said. There is a limit to history as propaganda. There have been uh, studies in the sociology of education which show that if you are trying to teach in a way that, as it fits in as it were, with a following wind from your audience, then you can achieve this. For example, Nazi teaching in Germany was very successful in both its anti-Semitism and in the, uh, instilling the idea of a harem folk, because those ideas already existed, and of course they were celebratory to a degree of many people. And, but you couldn't do the same. For example, Bantu education in South Africa failed in that sense. Africans could not be made to think the way that Afrikaner nationalists wanted them to do. And the same applied to blacks elsewhere in Africa who were taught, you know, in French Africa, the, the history books would start with nos ancêtres les Gallois. And Africans would laugh, <coughs> uh, reasonably. Now, 
I think the point that that gentleman made about the denigratory nature of much recent history, that couldn't have happened if there hadn't been a more general feeling of colonial guilt, for example. It had to hook into something there. Uh, it wouldn't have just been possible if, there were, if it was just historians doing that, you know. But I'm afraid it does leave the door wide open to celebratory history in any nation. We have run out of time, ladies and gentlemen. The, if you want more of that kind of eloquence, read the London Review of Books. Uh, <laughs> if you would like a drink, come to the London Review of Books party, which is happening in five minutes' time. Um, see, give with one hand, take with the other. Um, <laughs> but most of all, thanks for your eloquence and these guys. Please put your hands together for the panel. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.